Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Objective. We're interviewing a former prosecuting attorney in the United States or in a particular part district. We'll find out in just a moment. Please uh, leave a like and send in your super chats with questions and comments ASAP. And please welcome uh, historian, intellectual, and former prosecuting attorney, James Valiant. Oh, thank you, Rucka. How are you doing? Pretty good. So uh, I learned of your a past life at some point since you've been on the internet and I've always wanted to uh, ask you some questions. So here we are. Um, so anyone who's living in today's context needs to sort of wrestle with their conscience at one point or another, I would think. So if you're in the private sector in many, many, many um, industries, you at some point need to sort of cooperate with the government in some way. Uh, and even if you're not in those particular industries, you're still dealing with certain tax incentives or or tax something or another uh, regulations or lack of regulation, which which gives you an advantage over a different business. There's all there. There are times in the private sector when you're sort of unable to just follow your moral conscience. You need to you need to uh, live with the mixed economy we live in. That's the private sector. Then when it comes to. Um, let's say working as a politician, going into politics, let's say running for office or working for a campaign, you, you, in today's context, you need to basically compromise in some way. You need, if you're going to be a Republican, you basically need to work with candidates that are anti-abortion. Or if similarly, if you're working with the Democrats, you need to, you know, hold your nose and go along with all types of terrible um, laws that they are going to pass. Now, when it comes to being a prosecuting attorney, I would think you you really, really need to um, basically go against your own moral beliefs because you're now being called upon to enforce laws that should not be on the books in addition to laws that are properly on the books. So uh, there is kind of uh, my introductory um, monologue. So I guess, what was it like? Um, how long were you a prosecuting attorney? I guess there's there's a good question. What years? I went from, well, let's see, it was from 1989 to 2007. So for almost 18 years, I was a public prosecutor. I was a deputy district attorney for the county of San Diego, the state of California. And in the course of that time, I prosecuted many murder cases, rape cases. I became a sort of a specialist in rape cases, uh, child abuse cases. I even did some appellate work. Um, I found the work very, very rewarding. You know, uh, most objectivists would believe that most of the government, uh, there'd be distasteful moments like that. And of course, all objectivists agree that a great deal of our legal system is invalid. Not only isn't it a protection of individual rights, it's a violation of individual rights. Now, uh, anytime you're a government lawyer, you're going to have a different ethical, as you just pointed out, uh, position than the poor private sector person who's just trying to cope with what the laws are throwing at them. They are in a far more innocent position when they have to do that, it seems to me, <laughs> than uh, the government lawyers who are actually agents of prosecuting what are, in many cases, just downright evil laws. Now, most of those happen at the federal level. Uh, for example, uh, antitrust monopoly laws, uh, that's the federal justice department. Um, mostly, um, say tax enforcement from the IRS, immigration enforcement, uh, insider trading rules from the SEC, environmental protection rules, those kind of laws that uh, most of 
bans of Ayn Rand would think are just downright evil laws are done at the federal level. And uh, I had opportunities to work in the private sector. Uh, I had opportunities to work for the federal government and these regulatory agencies. I opted against all of that on purpose. I do not think that one can be an objectivist with integrity and spend your life enforcing securities and exchange laws or tax laws. I just think that's inherently wrong for an objectivist to even take on that job. Now, as in the state and local level, that's where we do the prosecution of laws that are at least in large part uh, laws that objectivists would agree with. Laws against uh, murder, theft, assault with a deadly weapon, kidnapping, rape, uh, you know, vandalism actual co physically coercive violations of, which are actual violations of individual rights. Most of that is done at the state and local level. And that is why on intentionally, I chose to be a government lawyer at that level. I wanted to be the guy in court and doing the fun stuff in court. And most private attorneys rarely get a chance to get inside court. They're negotiating contracts and trying to keep their clients out of court. Then uh, I, I wanted to be the guy, the Perry Mason having fun in court, pointing the finger and getting the bad guy, which I did find actually more emotionally rewarding uh, and ch challenging and a wonderful job. I loved the job in many ways. But of course, even at the local level, the DA level, we, there are crimes which, uh, which objectivists would very much object to. There are still economic crimes, uh, you know, zoning violations, say, or, and there's certainly still all the whole range of drug laws. I think the drug laws are a bloody, immoral mess, and drugs should be legalized. For example, the fentanyl deaths occurring in America today are a direct result of the illegality of fentanyl, uh, not the use necessarily of people are often getting things they think are not fentanyl and it's being being poisoned with fentanyl. If it was legal, of course, it would be as safe as buying aspirin at the drugstore. And so, because uh, you'd know the quantity, you'd know what's in there. Uh, so I, but as a baby DA, in my first couple of years as a DA, when you're getting training, you have very little choice as to it. You just sort of have to do preliminary hearings or, or get your training in how to issue criminal cases, and you're dealing with all those cases. And so I had very little choice at, at, at the beginning. But once you get to be a, a sort of respected, experienced, more senior DA, and it happened relatively early for me, thank goodness, you get to focus on what area, you know, what unit within the DA's office you specialize in. So I could say, uh, give me the domestic violence unit where unfortunately most of the murders happen or assign me to the child abuse unit where all we do is uh, child abuse, physical, sexual, or neglect cases against children. Um, and, or the appellate division, I love doing appellate work. And there I had some choice as well. So very shortly, I found I was able to specialize in things which kept me doing only the kind of crimes uh, I thought were appropriate to prosecute. That's interesting. I always assumed that as a prosecuting attorney, you you take whatever uh, crime is being alleged. Like so it could one day it could be a marijuana possession charge and another day it could be a murder. Like I, I didn't think you could be in a particular division. Well, most prosecutors don't have a, the same kind of moral qualms that I do about certain laws. And so they were happy to take any case that came their way. And there are general pool units where you can just do that. I wanted to go in San Diego, believe it or not, is the sixth largest metropolitan area 
in the United States. So we had a relatively large district attorney's office. You know, uh, when I was there, a couple of hundred DAs worked for the elected district attorney. Now they had different functions and roles as her agents, assistants or deputies or something. Uh, and I was a deputy district attorney acting in court uh, for the elected DA. Uh, but the, so large an office though, we have to have specialized units, a major violators unit, a child abuse unit, a domestic violence unit, um, and for example, we'd most the murders happen from someone you know. It's usually not stranger murder. So believe it or not, the majority of murder cases are generated from the domestic violence unit, a, a unit therefore I signed up for because I wanted to do a bunch of murder cases, um, uh, if that makes sense. So yeah, we have specialty units and you can, the, the sooner you become, you gain the confidence of your boss, the sooner you'll be able to choose the specialized unit you get into. And I was relatively quickly able to do that. Okay. Um, do you think the system, the court system runs basically honestly and fairly, um, having been inside of it? Do you think it, there's a lot of corruption? Like, how would you answer that if you could? I would say it's mostly, uh, at the level that I was doing it, it was mostly not corrupt. I think that, and here I'm going to make a general principle, uh, the less media attention a criminal case got, the happier I was because the jury would be learning about it all inside court and only from court, not from the media and not the huge public opinion that would be generated around it. Every time the local news cameras came in or a local, local newspaper reporter came in to talk to me, I would try to duck under the desk and avoid the media. But if you can't avoid the media, then uh, you, there are still ways to go to make it work. But even in the big media cases lately that we've had, uh, I'm actually relatively pleased across my country, even recently since I've left the DA's office with the jury outcomes. Um, uh, I, there are a couple of exceptions to that, obviously, but uh, I have great confidence in the American jury system. Now, there are a lot of rules and procedural things that are difficult to work with and that I just sort of had to swallow. Um, Take, for example, the exclusionary rule in evidence in America. The Supreme Court has said, the United States Supreme Court has said that if a cop, the police officer, in uh, investigating the case or arresting the defendant, violates the Constitution, the evidence is now inadmissible. It can't come in at trial if the cop violated the Constitution. Now, in many of those cases, the cop acted perfectly innocently. He didn't know he was, uh, it, it, the case may go up on appeal and a three judge panel may be divided two to one after months of argument. So how is the cop on the street in the immediate moment supposed to know what the proper thing to do is if appellate judges <laughs> after months of consideration disagree among themselves? And so sometimes and very frequently the cop is acting perfectly innocent. It has no effect on the reliability of the evidence. And so I oppose the exclusionary rule as it exists today. Why should the murderer get off? Why should the victim have to suffer because of some innocent mistake by the cop, even if it technically violated the Constitution? Or even if it's not an innocent mistake and it, uh, and it affects the quality of the evidence, there are other ways of sanctioning the cop. We can fire the police officer. We can suspend him without pay. We could fine him. We could criminally prosecute him. But rather than do the, the uh, sanctions against the cop for doing the wrongdoing, which would measure how willfully wrong he was doing it and so forth. We take it out on the case. 
with the exclusionary rule. So I opposed that procedural rule, but I had to just swallow it. I just had to live within what I thought was a bad procedural rule. And that you just can't avoid. You just have to swallow bad law, work within it. I am not the maker as a prosecutor. I do not make the laws. I enforce the laws of my state as they exist. And I kept that firmly in mind. It is not my opinion that I'm enforcing. I'm enforcing justice as I see it, protecting victims from force, from physical force, but within the parameters of the existing law. Best way I have of describing it. Do you think um, an objectivist, like so someone who agrees with you philosophically, but happens to work as a defense attorney, could come to very different conclusions than you, whether it's about how smooth the system runs, like maybe a defense attorney thinks it's much more stacked against the uh, the suspect, you know, the alleged criminal, or maybe a defense attorney, again, who agrees with you on, on in principle, but happens to, but they could honestly come to the conclusion that these procedures are there for a reason. And so if the police don't follow proper procedure, the evidence should be thrown out because as bad as the crime was, as heinous as it is, that's how badly we need police to follow procedure or else we, we are in a bordering on anarchy. So, you know, to be a little hyperbolic. Many, many, many times. I uh, See, I don't like the exclusionary rule as it exists, but as a prosecutor, I was always arguing when they had motions to exclude the evidence. I was always on the side arguing, bring the evidence in. I'm the prosecutor. The defense attorney saying, oh no, the cop did wrong. Keep that evidence out, judge. I had... I understood their motives. I understood they were working with an existing law. And I even understood it when they were saying, hey, this cop did something wrong. Part of me felt actually sympathy when they would say, so yeah, there you could have perfectly reasonable differences of opinion, but actually share similar values with defense attorneys. Um, in several cases, I, ha I had nothing but sympathy for the position of the defense attorney, even as I was arguing against it. Many defense attorneys believe it or not, shared my basic perspective that the government should be kept to, you know, keep their fire to the feet, make sure the government is doing things properly. And even when they had guilty clients, they would say to me, well, wait a minute here. I still want to keep the government on its toes. I still want to make you guys jump those hoops and prove it. Because if you don't prove it in even the, those cases against the guilty, then it'll happen to the innocent. And that's, that's how they saw it. And they weren't trying in some of those defense attorneys weren't just trying to get someone they knew to be guilty off just because I want to get everybody guilty off. They were just trying to make it as fair as possible for their uh, client. And those defense attorneys I respect and have utmost respect for. And the respect was mutual, by the way. I had a reputation among judges and defense attorneys of being honest, straightforward. I would always disclose the discovery, the information as, as soon as I got it. I was always going by the rules. And so I had a, a good, don't mean to boast, but I had a good reputation for integrity from the defense bar and the bench. But I would also, and it's a hard balance to strike, also had a good reputation within law enforcement, the cops and the prosecutors, because when I did pursue a case I believed in, I was ruthlessly mad dog aggressive. <laughs> I wouldn't want to negotiate a lesser sentence. And so, uh, uh, but it's a difficult balance to achieve. But absolutely, I had respect for defense attorneys. I think they can do their job morally. I think there are also defense attorneys who are not so moral and they are just trying to get criminals off, people they know who are guilty. and. Uh, I could detect that in many cases. And those were always the ones you never turn your back on.
Now, the sort of um, civil liberties uh, community of you know, of the times we live in, they tend to, they, they, they might hear what you're saying and, and say, look, a lawyer's job is not to, is not to have a moral opinion. A defense attorney's job is to protect their client and a prosecutor's job, you know, should be to ideally to follow the actual law and, and, you know, and like sort of um, prosecute, but not to, not to be corrupt and not to lie about the situation. But definitely they would say when it comes to a defense attorney, a defense attorney's job is to protect their client from getting put into a cage. And so uh, for, from an objectivist perspective, I, I could see how, no, you would say, no, ethics are, are everywhere. But, but at the same time, we, we want to follow rule of law. We don't want to have, you know, particular individuals, you know, dictating. Well, if the law is the law, both sides just have to buck. I mean, <laughs> there were many times where I would win the case on some legal point, the argument on some legal point, you know, as we're approaching trial and the defense attorney simply had to swallow it okay, you won, and I'm probably not going to win on appeal on that point. The law is just the law. We just sort of have to submit. And the same was true on my side. There was times when I had to just, okay, well, that's the, the way the law is, and I just have to submit. And we can't substitute our own. Like I say, we are just the executive enforcement of the law that exists, and the law as it exists. And we have to work within that law. Now, working within that law still gives a huge range of moral options. And I mean a huge range of moral options as to how you proceed. I can very much distinguish ethical prosecution from unethical prosecution. As I say, it's part of the code of uh, a lawyer's ethics that he or she cannot take a case that they don't believe in. If I don't believe that this case, uh, just morally, I, I'm sorry, I go, and there were times I went to my boss and I said, find someone else. You might be able to find another prosecutor who do this, but I cannot do this um, morally from my own perspective. And the boss always said, okay, Jim, I understand. There's someone like I'll either, we won't prosecute it or I'll assign it to someone else. I'll take your considerations uh, into account. Um, and so, and all kinds of optional choices too, in how you prosecute all sorts of optional uh, choices in that. And they're always ethical. Um, there's no way to avo avoid ethics in every single one of our decisions. And I'd go all the way back to deciding being a prosecutor. What, what level? Am I going to be a tax prosecutor for the feds or am I going to prosecute murder cases on the local level? Or even within that, am I going to utilize some aspect of the law because I think it would be just and appropriate here? Or am I not? Am I going to strategically not use that? Um, there are all kinds of options on both sides. And all of those questions, all of those questions boil down to an ethical question. You cannot avoid questions of ethics in any human choice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is your view of the police generally positive, uh, at least in, as far as the districts where you served? Um, that, uh, you know, a lot of people see the police as very corrupt. Um, and I do not see the police as mostly or inherently corrupt. I see most of them is actually where they disagree with me, say, about drug laws. They honestly believe in the drug laws. Um, and that's, a, you, know, you know, they may not have thought it through. They may not be very principled or philosophical. Most people aren't very philosophical. They're mixed bags. They take the, you know, the ethics as, as they accept it from the a biosmosis from their surrounding culture or religion or whatever. But uh, I think they were sincere in most cases. You don't take an underpaid, physically dangerous job 
where, you know, at two in the morning, you're sent out to separate a bloody drunk couple that are fighting or just simply to get spat on and be called dirty names. It is a thankless, dangerous, unpleasant job on a routine. Just do a few ride alongs with cops and you'll see that most 99.9% of their work is dangerous, unpleasant, unrewarded. And certainly these days, a thankless job. They got spat at and called names or shot at. Uh, uh, so, no, most cops, I think, are there for very, in their minds, principled ethical reasons. They're doing it to protect their community. Now, of course, uh, are they human beings? And here I would include both um, uh, truly immoral people who are being irresponsible as cops, and there are. There are. Cops tend to be on the conservative end of the political spectrum and with all the minuses and some of the pluses that go with that. And so the attitudes they brought oftentimes colored the way they did their job. And I was always having to fight that. Now, and there were times, even as a prosecutor, where I'm normally on the cop side. I mean, I had to after doing after one closing argument, I woke up to the local paper's headline the next morning, prosecutor accuses cop of lying, which I had to do in a closing argument because uh, I'm there to do justice. Uh, I'm there to do justice. So I'm per perfectly aware that cops do sometimes lie, plant evidence because they get sometimes so bitter about the system or um, let's take the other end, an innocent uh, case where the cop just is wrong, but sincerely believes in something. Uh, uh, all of that happens, to be sure. So bad things happen from cops. And certainly in some places, uh, those sheriffs uh, in those more rural districts or southern areas of our country, um, uh, I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them in some cases uh, because of pre-existing bigotry, less so about race these days than other reasons. Uh, this is a drug addict dirt bag. How many times did I hear that, right? Um, and that's the kind of attitude from cops you have to uh, fight against. Just because the guy's a drug addict doesn't mean he violated someone's rights, um, things like that. So those are the attitudes they bring to it that even if they sincerely believe in it, they're not doing good things and you have to watch the cop. That's why we have a legal system where defense attorneys can come in and question what the cop did. And, and so forth, and let the juries and the judges decide these things, not the cops. Um, that is vital that we can maintain that system and the integrity of that system. And the integrity of that system is more important than any disagreement I have about the content of the law. Let me uh, ask, I'll sort of uh, ask this in a different way. So I'm, I'm asking less about the, the character of particular cops and are they generally honest or not, but more about like is the, the way the system is that given that we live in a in a society where the police are often tasked with enforcing preventive laws um, and maybe they're even discouraged from going after those rapes and murders or rapes and, um, you know, batteries that you're that you're waiting to prosecute. Uh, and I know maybe I, maybe I watched The Wire a bit too much or or but I mean, but, you know, are you familiar with like um, controversies over the last 10, 15 years of like uh, just many, many untested rape kits were came to light where like the people reported rape. So they were going to the police, as people say, they say, go to the police. They did. The police tested them maybe begrudgingly, but they did. And then stored the kit away, the kit, K-I-T away. 
they never investigated further. And in just, I mean, the numbers are like mind blowing. It's like tens of thousands, a hundred thousand of, I, I mean, maybe, I don't know. So are you familiar with what I'm uh, yeah, kind of I picking up? And, and, and when, what I, are your, when I well, give you the specifics on the DNA, for example, when I became a DA, we didn't have DNA. <laughs> DAs, we had blood typing, which was, you know, helpful. We could tell whether the blood type was A, B, A, B, O, and that can at least reduce, give you some probabilities there about who did it. But DNA, which can really zero in and specifically identify, first, the first thing that happened, we had to learn the science of it. And as a DA, that's one of the fun things. You're always learning new science, forensic science, one of the things that made it a fun job. Uh, then we had to develop a database. We only, it took us years you know, every time a person is arrested on a felony or convicted of a felony, they have to submit DNA. And now their DNA is part of this master index of DNA being collected on criminals. It took us years to develop an adequate database that would actually be, be helpful to, you know, zeroing in on criminals. So part of that was simply getting DNA on board, developing a national database of DNA that we can compare it with. I'm a huge fan of the Innocence Project, where they're going back to murder and rape cases where there was some DNA or might have been some DNA that was not tested or didn't have the advantage of a national DNA database, which was really the important thing to get online. It's only in recent years, it seems to me, that we've been able to do this kind of thing with great effect. We have a large database of DNA and we can just plug in the DNA now and see if we, that DNA is there. Um, and uh, before DNA, there were innocent people and not all prosecutors had the same standards I brought to it. And uh, they were emotionally able to convince juries that someone had committed a rape in particular, um, and they turned out to be innocent. And the, DNA, the new ev DNA evidence shows that the person never committed the rape. Um, and so I'm a big advocate, even though I was a prosecutor, I'm a big advocate of the Innocence Project because I know that a lot of prosecutors didn't have my ethical standards. So so when it comes to all of those untested uh, cases, like untested rape kits that came that that came to light, you're, are you saying they're basically they just couldn't they had nothing to investigate? They didn't have the technology? Well, well, honestly, it varied from district to district. In some districts, they didn't even take an effort when this database started developing. And that is irresponsible. They should have had the resources to go back and say, hey, we now have rather conclusive evidence on cases. Like I say, especially rape cases. And murder cases are so important. They should all be tested if there's new DNA evidence. Uh, but, but a lot of rape, but really you could see why in a lot of rape cases, this was the case. Other jurisdictions were more aggressive about it. Other, some jurisdictions were less aggressive and uh, they really should have been more on it. Okay. I mean, the sort of, uh, the sort of impression I get, uh, admittedly as someone who's not, uh, you know, plugged into the whole world of uh, investigation and prosecution is just that we live in a time where the police at an individual police officer level, as well as the police department level, as well as just the interests of the, you know, the forces that be in the in the community and in, and, and the city, uh, they're incentivized and motivated to clean up the streets when it comes to drug dealers. And they're not particularly interested in investigating rape complaints. And that's where that all these untested cases well, we have a whole new issue today. And in recent years, we have DAs who've been elected in New York City and Los Angeles, for example, who have 
refuse to prosecute and have their own. See, we have limited resources as prosecutors. And so we cannot prosecute every single violation. And so we have to, there's such a thing called prosecutorial discretion. And it, it goes down to the cop level. If a cop is on the beach, say on the 4th of July and sees people with cans of beer on the beach and say, you're not supposed to have cans of beer on the beach. And the cop says, hey, this is the 4th of July. I'm going to look the other way on the cans on the beach. We call that uh, police discretion or prosecutorial discretion. In, in recent years, that has been stretched to the uh, straining point as the New York Manhattan DA and the Los Angeles DA have decided that, uh, that we are not going to prosecute crimes of violence, serious crimes, uh, certain kinds of crimes that used to be, and then the bail rules have changed in many jurisdictions um, that don't allow uh, criminals to be kept in custody pending real serious cases, cases of violence where the person should obviously have bail set or be kept in jail to protect the public in the meantime. Um, see, I don't regard the job of a prosecutor as destroying evil uh, everywhere it exists in the world. I was there to protect the innocent, to protect the rights of victims, you know, and when you succeed in a prosecution, I was, don't mean to boast again, but I was very successful as a prosecutor. And every time you get a guilty verdict, it's not a, hey, jump for joy. We got this guy. No, no, no. It's just a ah, relief. This bad guy is now off the streets. I can now face the victim and say, this guy's going to get some justice. It's a relief. It's not a joy, uh, is the way I would basically describe it. As much fun as I had as a trial attorney, because there was a lot of fun for me, frankly, um, the, the, pro the end result is basically just relief. But a lot of these, the focus change uh, going to, I mean, <laughs> local prosecutors in LA and uh, uh, Manhattan these days will be will care more about their uh, leftist social crime issues than they will about real crimes of violence. And so we have horrific cases now in the last couple of years, especially where uh, people were arrested on violent crimes only to get out and then commit some horrific murder or some horrific rape. The news in America today has been about that the poor 43-year-old woman who got uh, beaten, left unconscious and raped and robbed uh, by someone who should have been, who had already had uh, sexual assault offenses on his record and probably shouldn't have even been out. That is outrageous. That would, I'm glad I'm not a prosecutor these days because that would fill me with such frustration to see someone that I'd charged just be let out of prison the next day to go rape and kill someone a few days later. That would be so frustrating. I'm not sure I could handle being a prosecutor these days. Now, now so you, you, you mentioned uh, prosecutors are not um, acting on, you know, the evidence, like they're not taking, uh, they're not pressing charges, right? They're not moving the case forward. But I mean, um, do you think there's a, there is a validity to the claim that a lot of the evidence is simply not even reaching that level? It's not even reaching the prosecutors because the police they're just not particularly interested in catching rapists or rape suspects. They're much no, more interested I, I in, in most, drug dealers. No, I would say that in most, the vast majority of cases, the police's departments are frustrated because the prosecutors aren't prosecute, can't or won't prosecute as they used to. Um, and this is causing incredible demoralization among law enforcement across the country. 
Uh, a lot of people are retiring early, quitting from their jobs as police officers because they're getting nowhere. If you're more concerned, like the Manhattan DA, about environmental regulations than you are about people getting murdered and raped in Central Park, then there's a huge problem with the DA pro priorities. That, and I don't think that's shared by, uh, for example, the New York Police Department. Mm -hmm. And is the war on drugs uh, playing a big part in... Uh in uh, sort of confusing the, the cops in terms of like what matters to them and, and what the community expects of them. To Absolutely. Prioritize. Absolutely. They spend a huge, one of the main problems with local law enforcement, although we are the ones who prosecute most of the murders and rapes. Uh, there's a huge problem because we also prosecute a whole bunch of the drug cases and cops regard the, you know, at, when I was a prosecutor, I started a prosecutor, marijuana was not yet legal in most states. And there were cops out there who thought that someone who, you know, bought a couple joints was an evil being, just like a person, say, who committed theft uh, offenses. I did not share that same view. I'm proud to say that I helped start the first uh, 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 drug court. Uh, when I did was able to specialize at all in drugs, it was in order to create non-incarceration treatment alternatives for people charged with drug offenses. And I was very proud of being part of that. Uh, I don't believe in coercive treatment, but at least giving a non-incarceration uh, uh, alternative, a treatment alternative, to these cases I thought was a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a step in the right direction toward liberalizing drug laws. Uh, so you can do good and you are making moral decisions as a DA, no question. Now getting to the cops, yeah, a huge percentage of our resources go into drug in law enforcement. We could double, half the people in prison are there for drug laws. We could double the effectiveness of law enforcement simply by legalizing drugs without hiring a single new cop. Think of that. And more than that, there's a whole, a whole raft of crimes that occur, as I say, simply because drugs are illegal. People will steal to support their drug habit, for example. And oh. a, a whole range of other crimes that are the byproduct and simply the byproduct of our war on drugs. Oh, the, I mean, gang culture in the inner oh, city. I mean, that's God. that that's I mean, that's just a way of life. You know, you're born yes, in the sir. inner city. You. You basically you can join a gang when you need to do horrible things to prove yourself vicious oh, enough yeah. to join this gang or oh, yeah, you're, you or kill you're someone or commit an armed robbery just to get into the gang or rape someone to get into the gang or kill someone you love can be one of the uh, criteria to, to just or to show them how ruthless you are. I mean, exactly. um, or you can not do that. And drug laws is subsidizing organized crime and gangs. It, uh, you know, uh, an unemployed young person uh, uh, will not be able to afford a $600 gun unless he has the profits coming in from something like drugs. Um, yeah. That I saw over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So uh, legalizing drugs uh, not only would uh, help prevent, you know, the overdose, the overdoses vis-a-vis uh, -vis fentanyl you mentioned, but uh, it, it I mean, in, in incalculable other ways, would clean up uh, the streets. Countless and, other yeah, ways. You know, between the 1920, after the 1920s, when America uh, had prohibition and tried to outlaw uh, alcohol, um, crime in America had been declining until the 1920s significantly. America was getting safer and safer uh, until the 1920s. When prohibition laws came in, 
organized crime exploded. And there was a crime explosion for the next few decades. Even a couple of decades after the elimination, organized crime had been infused and pumped with huge resources, millions of dollars. And that's what our drug laws are doing, are making the worst, rather than those uh, profits going to drug companies or pharmacy companies, those profits went to to thugs and uh, criminals who would, you know, break the kneecaps or just execute their enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mentioned The Wire. Have you seen uh, Boardwalk Empire and, and or The Wire? No, I'm not familiar with those, but I've heard about those. Mm-hmm. So The Boardwalk Empire is a wonderful show taking place in uh, Prohibition. And uh, you see all the different gangs. And that's a time when uh, the different communities, the Italians, the Jews, the African-Americans, suddenly what race you were really mattered. I'm not, not to really say there was no racist. But now it's like you'd better galvanize with people who share your heritage. And uh, it became an an economic. And of course, the increasing regulatory state also gives you reason to galvanize and become a community now asking for subsidies and favors and to lobby. So it's absolutely uh, sad to see what took place in the 20th century. You nailed Mm -hmm. it. The prohibition laws simply subsidized the Al Capones. Mm -hmm. And that's what we end up doing. And there's all kinds of negative effects that uh, emanate from that uh, all over the place, Um, you know, and the fact is drug laws are not proportionate in the way they're enforced. If you're a middle-class person with a drug addiction, you're doing it at home in the safety of your private home and the cops are less likely to catch you. If you are poor, you're more likely to be doing it on the street or be doing it in places where the cops are gonna get you. And so poor and minority groups are disproportionately affected by drug laws. and that's just built into the system. Yeah. So there is um, there is uh, an element of truth when people say, oh, like we have systematic racism and the war on drugs is racist. I mean, they're not entirely wrong, because if you're black in a predominantly black neighborhood, there's a good chance the cops are just driving in circles looking for somebody to search. Whereas if you're, uh, you know, if you're in an affluent neighborhood, chances are you can sell pills or and sell drugs and buy it and from your friends, your parents keep it in their cabinet. It's like it's much easier to get away with it. Uh, you know, in the 1990s, the feds passed laws that were draconian federal uh, drug laws that required mandatory minimum sentences, not just for crimes of violence, but for uh, nonviolent crimes like drug laws. And so people for their first, you know, cocaine offense would be put away for decades. And one of the, uh, you know, I'm always <laughs> harassing Donald Trump for the monster that he was as a president. I am not on team Trump at all. But one of the few things that I really liked that Trump did was actually uh, his approach to criminal justice reform in this area. He got people out of prison who were basically there for nonviolent drug offenses uh, and Turns out a great many of them were minorities. The same kind of criminal justice reform that Obama, interestingly enough, had advocated, but never actually uh, did. Mm -hmm. Although uh, to counter that, I I believe back in the 80s or maybe in the early 90s, Trump took out an ad in, I think, the New York Times uh, agitating for the death sentence for a, uh, a handful of youths accused of murder, and they were later found innocent. So Trump, uh, he went the extra mile to try and and give the death penalty to people who turned out to be innocent. And the death penalty is a very controversial thing. Um, You know, injustice, of course, if someone premeditatedly kills another person, the just thing would be to do the same to them. I believe in proportionate justice. Uh, The punishment should be proportionate to the harm you caused, especially if it's an intentional or deliberate harm you caused. 
Uh, on the other hand, allowing the state to execute people uh, is also a terrifying prospect. Unlike, say, a 10-year prison sentence, even, I mean, it's horrible to take 10 years away from someone's life, but at least I can give them, you know, $50 million at the end of it to try and compensate for it. When someone dies, there's no way to even partially make up for or give restitution for that. That's a permanent decision. Now, so far, since the Supreme Court has given us back the death penalty, they have not yet found a case, a specific case, where through the Innocence Project or through DNA, where someone was executed who hadn't committed the crime. But there may well come a point where we're going to find that, yes, in recent decades, we have executed someone where the DNA evidence would have shown that they were innocent. And that is not uh, something, a, a possibility to dismiss lightly, in my view. So you do you agree with Ayn Rand? I think her view was like on principle, it's right to to kill a killer or to kill a murderer, but to give that kind of power to the state with the uh, um, possibility of error and or corruption is just giving them too much. You agree with that more or less? Sounds well, like Ayn, Rand, Ayn Rand thought it, she did uh, uh, kick it to the philosophy of law. She said mm -hmm. this is a matter of philosophy of law, but she outlined the uh, ethical and moral principles involved and the epistemological issue involved. Uh, and I agree absolutely with her general analysis of that. But, but let me give you an example that might make it clear. If a person tortures another person, let's say I slowly, you know, torture you over the course of a day or two, wouldn't the proportionate and fair punishment be torturing me? Should the state be allowed to slowly torture me the way I slowly tortured my victim? No, no. Uh, that would be... Uh, a power that the state should simply not be able to exercise. There are other ways to accomplish proportionality in those cases, mm -hmm. right? Give so them a life sentence if necessary. Yeah, we've evolved from the eye for an eye and sawing off people's arms. It, we, we, our our um, clause against or our amendment against cruel and unusual punishment is an advancement in Law. Definitely, and, yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. Cruel or unusual, which has been interpreted to mean disproportionate. And by disproportionate, we mean proportionate, but within the, uh, the parameters of what is safe for the state to do. So in other words, should we try to give the torturer as best as we can approximate the equivalent or, or even more than he dished out to his victim? Yes. But should the state be allowed to you know, put people on the rack? Uh, who should the state be? And so it's that category that I put capital punishment in. Um, does it make sense? Yeah, I think so. Now, in uh, in a proper society, what do you think prisons would look like? I know it's currently it's a uh, it's a gang ruled um, environment. Again, I think racism becomes like a a a, a defining um, force in the in the culture within prisons. Uh, of course, you know everyone's in a gang, and often race has a lot to do with it. And you know, there's uh, a lot of rape, a lot of abuse, a lot of some murders, in fact, and just just terrible. Uh, what do you think prison uh, and now some would say, hey, look, they committed the crime. Uh, they let them fend for themselves. And, and others would say, no, no, even when you're found guilty in a proper court of law, you still have certain rights. So, I mean, how, how do you view today's uh, prison prison situation and and these and these of what it should be? I am in absolute distress at the state of American prisons. I think they're way overcrowded because we have way too many laws in the first place. And that's part of the problem. I think that the gangs on the outside 
are what create the gangs on the inside by and large. Uh, and that has to do again with things like the drug laws and black markets that exist out there. Um, and so, yeah, the racial tribalism that exists in street gangs is perfectly reflected, as you might imagine, in the culture within prison. Rape is extremely common. Abuse and violence is extremely common. Corruption is extremely common in state and federal prisons. There's no question about it. Now, it should be a punishment. We're taking away your freedom. It's not, you should, it's not like you're going to a, you know, a country club here, uh, you know, or a four-star resort. Uh, so it should be a punishment. On the other hand, the punishment should not involve the equivalent in effect, torture, uh, coming from other prisoners or the system itself. And uh, in order to do that, I think part of that is really a resource thing. We're just taking on way too much, putting way too many people in prison who shouldn't be there. And that, and because of the gangs on the outside and the black markets on the outside, that's increasing the problem on the inside. Is we, it I believe in determinate sentencing so that there's a regular objective expected outcome for certain fact patterns. And it should be the same, at least within every state, so that you know it's objective and fair and equal uh, for everyone. And one of the great sources of inequality in the punishment is how people get treated in prison. Some people are gods because they're on top of the, their racial gang and other people are badly abused. That is not proportionate punishment. Yeah. Um, so is it is it that the gangster culture from the streets makes its way into prison or is it that just this kind of emerges in these sort of anarchic state of prison because it's a bunch of people left there with no way to get out and there's and like all you can really do is just band with people who look like you and start to, uh, you know, try and push people around. Well, I'd say there's a little of both. I'd mm -hmm. say that when you're in a desperate situation like prison and you're talking about largely uh, unconceptual mentalities, <laughs> uh, these people are going to act on the uh, perceptual level and probably gravitate to the place they feel most tribally at home. These are emotionalists. These aren't highly conceptual people, you know, long-term thinkers. That's why they're criminals. They're doing stuff, general, even drug addicts, for example, and drug dealers, they're doing self-destructive things. So it's not like the prison population itself isn't naturally going to break down in irrational tribalistic ways. And we're talking about people who are desperate and violent. Um, uh, that sort of problem, I think, can be handled by reducing the prison population and adding resources. On the other hand, the way it does reflect, uh, come out in prison, is a reflection of the gangs on the outside. It really, really is. Um, and so the Crips and the Bloods, for example, will have their, even though they're two African-American groups of gangs, they will have their equivalents on the inside in prison. And those are the big ones because <laughs> getting stuff in and out of prison is a lot easier than many people realize. Drugs are being used, weapons are being imported into prison. And that stuff comes from organizations outside. Outside organizations can feed in to the uh, drug sales that are going on within prison or the weapons that are being used for violence in prison. And it is the outside culture that I would say is the dominant force, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. And white guys in prison are not too concerned with political correctness. Uh, you know, they're, <laughs> no. They're, they're, they'll, they'll band together as, as, as white supremacists. <laughs> well, or white, a, white a, lot of, 
a lot of white guys who do, mm-hmm. are not white supremacists will simply gravitate. And I've heard this story many times. You know, mm-hmm. I go to the state prisons and do these parole hearings on, on lifers, uh, you know, uh, coming up for parole. And many of them reported just that. Look, I'm not a racist. I, I have no sympathy with white supremacism, but I was tired of getting beat up by the Hispanics and the blacks. And <laughs> so I just went and gravitated to the group of all whites. Now they were skinheads and they had swastikas on their arms. <laughs> that didn't make me feel comfortable. But on the other hand, that's where I was getting physical protection. <clears throat> and I had a certain degree of sympathy for that um, mm-hmm. because they're in a, in a very extreme context uh, mm-hmm. where they have to shut up and keep their opinions, even rational opinions to themselves. So let me ask you about a more a timely thing uh, in Florida. The, uh, you know, he who can do no wrong in the eyes of some Ron DeSantis uh, took action. So there was a, a handful of prosecutors, I believe, maybe countrywide. They signed the declaration in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I think they said we will not prosecute abortion cases. Um, DeSantis, I think, like laid off or he suspended one of his one of his districts, one of the Florida Floridian prosecutors. And he, you know, he told the press, we will not let woke people like we will not basically give up our justice system to the woke. Now, obviously, he's using a little bit of a, you know, um, red meat language to to excite the audience. But what do you think of them signing that declaration? Is that a normal thing? Is that common? Is that acceptable? Them saying they won't prosecute a particular type of crime. And then what do you think of DeSantis's actions insofar as you're familiar with that story? Well, in many states such as California, or excuse me, not California, (laughs) it's not like this. But New York, for example, and Florida are like this. The governor can fire the county DA, even if the county DA was elected by the local county. Um, uh, for example, uh, the governor, the Democrat, Kathy Hochul in New York could fire the Manhattan DA tomorrow or Manha- or fire the Erie County DA tomorrow. Um, and so her complaints about crime really are, it's the system. No, it's her system and she's the governor and at fault. Now, with Governor DeSantis on rape laws, I can tell you one thing that would have had me quitting the DA's office immediately any thought that I would have any role in prosecuting doctors or women for abortion would have me leave the office. I would simply could not do that. Similarly, for example, I couldn't work for the feds in uh, prosecuting uh, military conscription evasion. Uh, So immoral do I regard the draft, so immoral do I regard abortion laws that I could have no truck with it. I would have no participation in any of it. So while DeSantis may have this authority, and on one hand, you can say, well, whatever Florida's law is as a prosecutor, I'm not going to prosecute it as the elected DA under my prosecutorial discretion. That may be within their prosecutorial discretion. On the other hand, it's your job to enforce the laws of the state. Um, It seems to me that the best way to uh, uh, approach that is to say, I quit. I cannot prosecute the Florida's abortion law. DeSantis has got a 15-week abortion law he wants to get passed in Florida, right? And uh, and enforced in Florida, I think, we already have it passed. Um, uh, I'm not sure. (laughs) But in either case, uh, the law is pernicious. And uh, if the the DA cannot enforce his state laws or if his state's criminal laws contain such evil matters which I regard as the equivalent of, in effect, slavery, like the draft or abortion laws, they should quit. It's an immoral thing to do. 
And that would be unfortunate because then rational and more moral prosecutors wouldn't be doing the job. But look, if you live in a state like Texas or Oklahoma or Alabama or Mississippi or Florida, that's what's going to be the case. Fortunately, in places like California and New York, um, they'll, they're not going to have such abortion laws. But I'll tell you, if my jurisdiction had such laws, I simply couldn't be a prosecutor. Would I would abortion... have no part in that. Would that have been part of the domestic violence division, or how how, how do you suppose uh, abortion they would, they would be categorized? Would, Murder. No, they would have they would have that probably in a special division, but probably for medical regulations. Mm. You know, is like a cop or like a excuse me, like a hospital or a doctor doing something intentionally wrong. They would they would have it you know in the business and professions uh, code type prosecutions. Um, I think it'd probably be in the general pool of prosecutor prosecution at first, but then of course over time they'd probably develop a specialized unit for you know uh, you know fetus rights or something division of the DA's office, which would be utterly terrifying to me. Uh, that they would at least that would allow some prosecutors like me to avoid the division, but it would corrupt the entire office in my system. And, I honestly would have a hard time working for an office that did such a pernicious thing. Mm -hmm. um, all right. A few super chats. Uh, Nick nine, with 999. Thank you. Bonnie with 99 cents. Thank you. Bonnie with $2 says, I suspect I know the answer to this. She asks, did you ever see the guilty go free? All the time. We have a system, the, the principle of our system basically says it's better for 10 guilty men to go free than to prosecute one innocent man. Now think mm -hmm. about that. We do have a system that requires uh, in criminal cases that I had to prosecute, according to the United States Supreme Court, the prosecutor has the burden of proof. He has to prove each and every element of the offense, and he has to prove that the dude that he has accused did it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now think about what that means. You may think the guy's probably guilty after you've heard all the evidence. He's really probably guilty, very guilty. But do you have a doubt that's not an arbitrary doubt as we objectivists call it, but a doubt based in the evidence? Even if it's just a doubt, even if it's just a rational possibility, a non-arbitrary possibility, you must vote not guilty. You think, I, you know, he's probably guilty, 80, 90% chance he's guilty. But there's this piece of evidence that it makes it non-arbitrary that he might be innocent. You are a not guilty vote. And not only is the burden of proof that high in a criminal case, it has to be a unanimous verdict from the jury. So everyone on the jury has to agree there's, there's rational certainty that this guy is guilty. Even if I think he's probably guilty, I have to vote not guilty if that's not the case. Wow. That necessitates, in effect, that many, many, many guilty people go free. But we, as I say, we have a system that says better that an innocent person or better that a guilty person go free than any innocent person get uh, wrongly convicted. And it's an attitude in general that I have sympathy with because that will be the effect, although that's not my goal. I would try to minimize the effect of that. <laughs> but on the other hand, it, it, the truth is that compared to criminals, the violations of rights committed by governments in human history are, are the comparison is the, the, it's the governments that have done 99% of all the rights violations in human history. It's your Hitler's, Stalin's, dictators who are the ones who are the major, compared to local criminals, local criminals are pikers, pikers. So my greater fear is the government. 
-hmm. when it comes to rights violations than any particular criminal. That's yeah. the way I put it. Mm -hmm. But we're not anarchists, of course. So we're not. Certainly not. So, yeah. And so I mm -hmm. thought what I, so being a DA is a, like I say, it's still, it's one of the, you know, like police, courts, DA, the army. Those are some of the valid functions that even we objectivists think should happen. And not that just valid, but vital and important functions. I saw myself as a DA as making possible other people's peaceful activities. I was creating an environment, uh, a non-coercive environment, where people could voluntarily interact with some peace and security from violence and force, creating the context in which people could do business, mm -hmm. lead, their, lead their private lives in peace and security and freedom. Yeah. We're running out of time, but yeah, like I see a lot of like anarchist premises uh, in the culture more by each and every day. Definitely, I think yeah. probably the defense attorney culture, the sort of civil yeah. civil libertarian oh, view. the whole defund the police movement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those guys are, I think they're, they're, an, they're an embarrassment even to the average probably defense attorney, but even just <laughs> among like, uh, you know, well-meaning civil libertarians, you know, ACLU types, et cetera, like they're, as much as they're doing a lot of great work to protect the innocent or to protect due process, even when it comes to the guilty, um, they, they seem to have this view a lot of the time where like government is inherently corrupt. So any way we can screw the government and prevent them from putting anyone behind bars is a good thing. But of course, we have a view that there is a proper role of government. In fact, it's something we can't live without as humans. A couple more super chats. Uh, Marilyn with $2. Thank you. Uh, not another guitar channel with 10 Australian dollars says objectivism kicks a lot of things to the philosophy of law, which makes James Valiant's expertise so valuable. Are you a, a, a philosopher of law or are you a lawyer who, who worked as a, are, are those two the same or are those two things different? No, they are. <laughs> no, being a philosopher of law is a definite field of study of science. Mm -hmm. Being a yeah. lawyer, the practitioner within the existing law, I would make the distinction there. I mm -hmm. was a practitioner, but being a student, my undergraduate degree was in philosophy. I studied philosophy straight from Dr. Peikoff himself. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I had, I myself, in fact, I had discussions with Dr. Peikoff in his home about philosophy of law. And it, he would always say, look, don't quote me. This is a specialized subject for me, but I'm sure this is because this is interesting to you. Let's think through some of these problems. For example, I had a discussion with him about the exclusionary rule. I had a discussion mm -hmm. with him about death penalty. There were even particular cases where I could change the names to protect the innocent and get his opinion. Uh, so I'm very much interested in the philosophy of law. Um, I uh, there there are good philosopher, you know, good legal thinkers, theorists, and good philosophers working on the subject. Uh, I recommend the work of Professor Tara Smith highly on this mm -hmm. uh, uh, in this subject. Uh, but am I a in my own private capacity, a philosopher of the subject, you bet. Okay. And I wanted to ask you about Peikoff's OJ Simpson uh, lecture, but we truly are out of time. So let's bookmark that at 7 yes, PM sir. UK time. And in, in one minute, it's the premiere of the briefly objective with Rosie Ginsburg on who owns football. Then at 10 PM UK time, it's TV talk with Mark Pellegrino, Jack Schumann and Jennifer Buani discussing the TV show, the bear, you know, I've heard legend of a bear, uh, showing up at an objectivist event in the 90s. Maybe you can tell us that story someday if you were there. But we're out of time. Thank you, James, for a wonderful conversation. Talk Thank again you. soon, I hope. Thank you, yeah. everybody. See you back next week for The Daily Objective, and goodbye. Take care.